Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Hugo Batten, Managing Director of Aurora in APAC and California. We're very much looking forward to today's discussion, which is going to be focused on the Japanese power market. But a slightly different focus from our usual podcast, it's going to be a little bit more like the podcast we ran on capacity market and nodal discussions in that we've got the Aurora team on the line today and no external guest. This podcast will be released just as we open our office in the Toronomon region of Tokyo and deliver our first suite of Japanese research products to that market. So we've got Aurora's Japan Power Market Leadership team in today to discuss key elements of the energy transition in Japan, as well as some insights from Aurora's Japan Power Market modeling work. Rowan von Spreckelsen, Head of New Markets APAC, Hayato Ono, Head of Advisory Japan, Selin Chen and Alex Luda, project leaders in the team, Sehun Nakama, an associate in the Japan team. So for our listeners who aren't experts in the Japanese power market, maybe let's lay out some of the basics. And Hayato, I'll start with you. What's the current generation mix and how is it changing over the next two or three years as a, as a baseline? Well, as of 2022, Japan's total power generation stood at around 900 terawatt hours of which over 70% was from fossil fuels, evenly split between gas and coal. The remainder is in renewables and nuclear, with renewables making up around 20%. Nuclear's portion was actually around 5%, which is a far cry from pre-Fukushima era, when nuclear made up nearly one-third of Japan's generation mix. Uh, for the next five years, we see several key themes. One, so renewables will continue to grow, in particular in offshore wind. Two, uh, nuclear proportion will increase uh, due to the restart of fleet. And three, uh, we see growing interest in batteries from both overseas and domestic players as well. Super interesting. And we're, we're going to dive into each of those more as, as we go. Alex, what are the key policy pushes on decarbonization before we get into the detail of electricity market design? Yeah, so the Japanese government has a uh, uh, short-term and a long-term uh, ambition uh, so strategically, the long term is uh, what is most important. We want to hit 2050 um, at uh, net zero, which is in line with major OECD economies. Now, in the medium term for 2030, we have a different goal, um, 46 to 50 percent decarbonization relative to 2013 in the Japanese government's words. Uh, or other people would like to measure relative to the 1990 baseline, which would be 40 to 44 percent. Now, these emissions-related objectives are underpinned by things happening in the energy side. So for 2030, what we have is a goal of 36 to 38% uh, renewables and also 20 to 22% of nuclear. These, these percentages refer to generation in, in, in that year. In addition to that, for 2040, we have a capacity target for offshore wind, as Hayato has alluded to. So we want to have 45 gigawatts of offshore wind. Um, in the country. And behind all of this expansion of renewables, we have a master plan for the, strengthening the grid from, from Octo. 
In addition to these supply policies, then there's also something on um, on the demand side. So the government has a very ambitious plan to expand energy efficiency, and there is uh, work happening in terms of electrifying new sources of demand. So this would be heating and uh, transportation. Terrific. And we'll get into the feasibility of some of those targets as we move through today's discussion. So if they're the big policy decarbonization targets, what are the big shifts on market design? Japan, like a lot of markets, is a bit later than some that our listeners are probably familiar with, moving through the privatization, increased competition uh, uh, phase. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and just paint the architecture of electricity markets for our listeners? Yeah, so as you alluded to, um, the deregulation of Japan is uh, still happening. So there's unbundling and uh, liberalization uh, that is still ongoing. So it's uh, good to understand where we are right now and then look at what's happening in the short and and medium term. So right now, there's five important things uh, that characterize the Japanese electricity market. So we have a wholesale market, which covers uh, roughly less than 40% of the entire generation um, of the country. In addition to that, we have a relatively new capacity market, and we have seen already uh, by, by now um, three auctions for um, uh, delivery years. The third uh, piece of market architecture is a balancing market, uh, which is still unfolding. Uh, we have currently the two slowest promised products in existence and, and being traded. The fourth uh, piece uh, that, that I would mention here is the support schemes for renewable electricity. Um, the most high-profile development here has been the introduction of a feeding premium uh, uh, for uh, solar, wind, and other other technologies. And here, the premiums are are decided through an auctioning mechanism. Finally, the fifth uh, element of the current architecture is the existence of something called the non-fossil certificates, which is essentially an um, uh, obligation on retailers to cover a certain part of their sales from clean source of energy. So that's that's today. But in the short term, uh, there's going to be four major changes happening to, to this. Uh, first, uh, the balancing market is going to gain by next year three additional new products. Um, in addition to that, uh, the second development is going to be the creation of a auctioning mechanism for long-term support for decarbonized uh, generations. Uh, so this is uh, going to transition 120 gigawatts of conventional power uh, from today fossil fuel burning and, and, and therefore emitting to low carbon equivalents by the year 2050. The third change is the introduction of a, a carbon price, which we'll probably talk about later. And finally, the certificate market um, is uh, now being upgraded in, in order to give retailers higher targets and also enable corporate PPAs to happen um, more easily. The final change that is happening here uh, in the medium term is the um, idea that METI has been uh, developing to transform Japan into something slightly resembling a PJM. So this would involve a co-optimization of the existing wholesale market and balancing market. But this idea is uh, something that we don't expect to be implemented before the year 2028. So this is in a nutshell everything that's happening right now in Japan. Yeah, and, and certainly a lot of pieces there which we'll elaborate on. Just to clarify for our listeners, you said something like 40% of power is traded through the wholesale market. The rest of it, you know, these dominant vertically integrated utilities will trade power between their generation and, and retail arms, essentially, so it doesn't actually kind of make it to the transparent wholesale market. 
that 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 is definitely correct, uh, uh, and uh, a lot of it is being traded bilaterally. Uh, it, what is possible is that by 2020, if this uh, transition towards a PGM style mar market is going to happen, that more, um, uh, well, essentially everything would be traded uh, through the wholesale market. But we, that, mm. this needs to be explored in the future. Terrific. So, Rowan, we've mapped out some of the big picture stuff there, but. What are the key debates and uncertainties in Japanese investment and policy circles? Like basically what are clients talking to you about um, when they're looking at long-term forecasts? So it differs a little bit whether we're, not, we're talking about the investors or whether we're talking about policymakers. If I break out those two categories, so on the investment side, there are a couple of key topics. Um, firstly is around investability of renewables, and that's both in the context of the new PPA market that has grown uh, enormously in, in Japan on the back of the feed-in tariffs moving towards this feed-in premium has kind of birthed the, uh, the, the kind of acceleration of a, of a PPA market in Japan. So how do we think about valuing, valuing those? The other aspect on the renewable side is around grid and land limits. Um, a number of our listeners that are kind of familiar with international markets will be familiar with, with, with grid and land issues. It is particularly prevalent in Japan as a mountainous country, relatively long kind of uh, stringy grid. And we are seeing regions that are almost maxed out in terms of uh, availability at the substation level to connect in. So those, those are the two critical questions on the renewable side. The other, the, the other one from an investor's perspective is batteries. Um, we've seen a lot of interest in battery investment cases over the last couple of years. And there are emerging a couple of different business model options, both through the new low carbon 20 year support mechanism versus a merchant revenue stack that looks at co-optimizing revenues across wholesale and these new balancing markets that Alex touched on. So those are the key topics from an investment perspective. You asked as well about policy. I think there are three topics on the policy side um, that are the, the major ones. So what is the role of what is the role for firming long-term? And Japan specifically is looking a lot at that in the context of hydrogen, ammonia co-firing versus the existing thermal fleet and whether or not we need to kind of uh, map in CCS on top of that. The second category in there is what's the role of the nuclear fleet long-term? We're restarting from a low base at the moment, getting to, to a higher proportion the expectation is that's going to make up a large proportion of the fleet long-term, but there are big question marks around uh, individual utilities, the strength of balance sheets, and the ability to deliver some of these restarts on, on time, for example. And the final and third category there on the policy side is how quickly can we move on offshore wind? Government's got a 45 gigawatt offshore wind target by 2040. And, and the key question there is how much of the mix is that going to be? Will it be on target and on time? How where are going to be the key areas to invest? The Sea of Japan, the Pacific side, they both got their own um, own challenges, but likely to see that volume of offshore wind, we're going to have to open up the EZ, the exclusive economic zone, for floating um, at reasonable scale. So that's the kind of third third category for, for policymakers. There are a few more, but those are the, those are the big ones. So we're going to tackle this next part of the conversation in a slightly modelary way. We're going to talk about some inputs, you know, what are the drivers of market outcomes? 
And then we're going to talk about some of the outputs from Aurora's long-term modeling suite. So to start with inputs and, and what are the key drivers of Japan power market dynamics and investors, developers, and project finance banks are asking about, I suppose we're going to try and work through the main items fairly quick and give the 20, 30 second summary on the Aurora house view. So let's work through the big ones in turn, just so each person doesn't have to repeat it. Of course, Aurora runs scenarios. We stress test these pretty thoroughly. But for the most part, this conversation is going to be our central view of the world. And then we'll highlight some areas where there's really material divergence of, of views amongst Japan's energy community. So, Len, maybe if I could start with you on the first couple, nuclear reopening schedule, how do we see that versus you know official government targets? Yeah, so government and industry have really different views on nuclear restart. So under METI's latest strategic energy plan, um, the government wants to achieve about 32 gigawatt nuclear capacity by 2030, um, which is about um, 200% increase to the current 10 gigawatt running. On the other hand, um, so each individual utility company who actually owns the nuclear plants has the more conservative view on how much they can achieve by 2030. There are um, uh, very stringent regulation um, steps each nuclear unit have to go through with the nuclear regulation authority in order to restart the units. Um, historically, there have been some constraints on how many applications the authority can handle in each step. So Aurora Central scenario has made assumptions based on um, things like authorities' application process capability, local acceptance level, the strengths of individual utilities, um, balance sheet in order to make those big capex spends, as well as necessity for regional energy security um, to map out what is a realistic timeline for each nuclear restart. Overall, we expect the nuclear fleet to reach about 32 gigawatt level, which is similar to METIS, but we see this happening by the mid of 2030, so about four to five years delay than the current government target. And then long-term demand, and Japan has a fairly unique dynamic here given the population declines kind of embedded in its demography. Where do we see that coming out? Yeah, so the high-level expectation is that um, conventional demand from residential and commercial will track down as population declines. However, under government's net zero target, there are a couple of areas where we see demand may grow. So number one is industrial load, which is back to increase this back GDP slowdown because of acceleration of industrial electrification. Mm. Number two is the acceleration of the transportation electrification, particularly in passenger vehicles. Um, number three is um, we expect a small level of domestic electrolysis for hydrogen production in regions with um, particularly uh, regions with high renewable penetration. Um, and in addition of that, um, there are also other new flexible loads such as flexible heat pump and direct air capture that will be considered as well. So in total, Aurora central scenario um, sees underlying demand, um, which is the demand before netting of all the behind-the-meter generation, uh, such as rooftop solo, um, to stay relatively flat in the short term and then grow and reach about 1,100 terawatt hour by 2050, um, which is about 230 terawatt more or equivalent 20% more um, than today's level. So maybe if I could bring you in here, 
a common criticism of, I suppose, modeling exercises like the ones Aurora undertakes is that it often ignores land constraints. And that matters less in places where there's lots of land, but particularly grid constraints. So spare network capacity, uh, system strength, those types of topics. How have we thought about that in the Japanese context, which is clearly genuinely land constrained in a way that most other countries aren't? Indeed. So Aurora takes these land and grid constraints very seriously when we model them. We differ from other models in that we spend a lot of due diligence to endogenize these constraints in the model in order to replicate real-world decision-making that developers are going through. And so we want to emphasize that land and grid, grid constraints are physical constraints that will drive long-term capacity upgrade outcomes just as much as price and politics will. And so at Aurora, we've accounted for land constraints by looking at land use regulation that currently exists, as well as total renewable land potential, and then working backwards from there. And in terms of grid constraints, we've looked at substation-level data to determine spare capacity and have taken future grid upgrades into account as well. And so as a result of doing the modeling ourselves, we're kind of able to take our own view of how we think the government will hit its targets. Uh, for example, the 260 gigawatt solar target uh, by 2050. Uh, so while the Octo 2050 master plan will allow you to hit that target, uh, there's a lot more grid infrastructure and capacity needed to get there than what we're currently seeing. And so taking these land and grid constraints into account, we think that 260 gigawatt uh, national target will be seeing either lots of curtailment, um, and we kind of expect that solar de deployment may be lower than what the government has laid out. But again, we will explore those in the other scenarios. So It's probably also worth just mentioning, Hugo mentioned at the beginning of this section, just talking about other scenarios we run. That probably is one of the big alternative scenarios we run most frequently with governments. Uh, to look at how much spend there would need to be to unlock the grid to incentivize private sector investment versus government subsidizing renewables directly, but seeing a level of curtailment to enter the market based on what the grid is and actually looking at the trade-offs between government subsidies directly for renewables versus government funding for grid infrastructure and letting the, the private sector market do it. So that's one of the common alternative scenarios we look at in, in government context. Yeah, great point, Ryan. We, we're doing a lot on that, for example, in offshore wind in Victoria in Australia. Uh, great example. And then, Sohorn, Alex touched on a lot of the market rule changes that are coming down the line. We don't have time, uh, nor I suspect the audience's attention span to run through all of those now. But, you know, maybe you could touch on one or two of the market rules that are really going to drive outcomes over the long term and how we're thinking about them. Right. So, again, there's numerous markets, uh, wholesale balancing, which which maybe we won't go through here. But in terms of the capacity market, uh, maybe we can take a little deeper dive. So the key objective of the capacity market is to achieve security of supply. And so in Japan, uh, the capacity markets are structured uh, to procure capacity four years in advance. Uh, and there's like, you know, a procurement target with a buffer. And there's a price ceiling of 50% above the net cost of a new entrant. And so the new capacity market officially starts next April. But we have three years of uh, auctions to look at. And we see the price clearing near to the fixed cost of a peaking asset. So how we reflect this in the model is that uh, we solve for this capacity procurement target using a dynamic feedback loop, so co-optimizing across revenue for the wholesale and capacity markets, so plans coming online in the future see both revenue streams when making investment decisions. 
And that's kind of how, in a nutshell, we've approached the capacity market in our model. Alex, you touched on carbon prices before, and I know this is an area where there's pretty divergent views in the investment and energy community. Where are we thinking about capacity prices in our central and and I suppose how are we thinking about across scenarios too? So uh, around the carbon price, uh, I think it's worth remembering here that the key piece of legislation that there shall be such a thing as a carbon allowance and shall be purchased, that is only a week old. So uh, there's uh, a lot of uh, legislation, enabling legislation regulations that are still missing. And in, in that vacuum, uh, what we have to build on is experience from other markets. Uh, so looking at what happened in Europe, we expect that Japan will behave roughly in the same manner. So concretely, this means that it will achieve uh, in the same amount of years, uh, roughly the same uh, uh, carbon price in real terms as as Europe has had, and then it will slowly trend uh, upwards. So that is the assumption that exists in the uh, central uh, scenario. Obviously, um, this is uh, a big ask to um, put before investors that this will evolve uh, like this, which is why we are pro- providing sensitivities uh, on this. So a central view of the world without any uh, carbon price. And as we will highlight probably when we talk about the scenarios, our central scenario does not achieve net zero, which is a very big strategic uh, objective that the government has. So uh, we are looking at um, a higher carbon price as well, uh, where, where the economy-wide objective uh, is, is met. The key thing to remember here is the policy is up in the air and it's still coming in. So we're watching this very closely. And as soon as we we hear something more concrete, then we will incorporate this in our modeling. Hey, Arthur, maybe I'll finish with you here. And if I think the last year or two has taught us anything, it's a deep humility about ability to forecast commodity prices. But could you maybe give a sense? I mean, Japan's been buffeted by higher gas prices over the last year or two, just like every other country. What we're thinking about, this is an input. So following the onset of the Russia-Ukraine war in early 2022, we did, uh, we did see commodity prices rise sharply, so resulting in record wholesale prices in Japan. So since then, commodity prices have um, settled after a year of high volatility. So in the short term, uh, we do expect uh, commodity prices to continue to trend lower as uh, geopolitical crises subside. For the mid to long term, uh, we see gas prices rising over the coming decades, with JKM trading around $12 per MMBT today to a range of about $15 to $20 in 2060, as uh, climate change policies uh, drive a switch away from coal, and also due to global demand growth, uh, particularly in Asia, such as China and India. Uh, for coal and oil, we see the prices declining over the long term as emissions policies and also um, decarbonization efforts diminish their demand globally. Rowan, I suppose, you know, Aurora tries to own its own supply chain. We think deeply about these input assumptions, but we also you know, regularly stress test them with the market to see you know, how close to consensus we are. And if we are at a consensus, you know, we better have a good reason and, and have done our homework. How have you been kind of stress testing this in Japan? And where are areas, I suppose, where there's the most divergence of, of opinion? Yeah, so it's a key part of the kind of research agenda and, and one of the beauties of being an, an independent research house. So we've got a subscriber group of over 20 companies in, in Japan that subscribe to our analysis each quarter. And essentially we go out to that group and make sure that the various inputs are 
kind of aligned up with what, what they're seeing in the market. And there's a diverse mix uh, there. So with regards to when we speak to all of the project finance banks, it's very much about kind of the, the wax that they're seeing in the market, how they're thinking about the cost of debt that feeds into the, the development projects. The developers, it's having conversations around what CapEx they're seeing in the market. We've seen huge fluctuations recently on that front. They're starting to come down again there. We want to make sure that those are factored into the short term in our forecast uh, in particular and how that feeds through into auction structures for the feed-in premiums or for the, for the low carbon support mechanism. So it's about making sure that we've had those conversations and are feeding that back each quarter uh, into the into the forecast, so it's a pretty regular it's a regular drumbeat of having those um, those debates and discussions. Let's maybe pivot to outputs now. So, Hayato, the kind of core question that most clients typically ask us is, "What is our long term view of wholesale power prices in Japan?" And you know, given there's nine regions we're modelling, where is the variation by by region? So in the short term, uh, wholesale prices are expected to come down from historical highs in recent years, or given the restart of nuclear fleet and also commodity prices coming down. Mm. So in the mid to long term, uh, we do see a number of factors driving prices higher uh, to around 12 yen or 9 cents per kilowatt hour for most regions in Japan uh, due to the introduction of carbon price, uh, higher gas prices, and also replacement of uh, or upgraded the thermal fleet with hydrogen ammonia co-firing or CCS technologies. So among the regions uh, you refer to, so we do expect Hokkaido and Tohoku to see the lowest prices of around 10 yen or 7 cents per kilowatt hour as the transmission upgrade plans uh, might unlock significant amount of renewable potential in these regions. Super interesting. And then, so Lynn, you know, the wholesale market is one part of the story, but we've talked at some length about how the capacity market uh, has emerged as driving new investment, particularly in dispatchable capacity. How do we see the dynamics of the capacity market playing out? Does the system get tight over the next 10 years? Are we going to see some spikes like we've seen in the UK as big plants exit? What's What are the key takeaways for listeners there? Mm, yeah, so in the next 10 years, um, our central scenario expects the capacity market to be continued. Um, to be cleared at the operating cost of gas or peaking plants, which is around 3,500 to 6,000 yen per kilowatt per year. Um, just for the audience, so that is um, roughly equivalent to 26 to 44 US dollar per kilowatt per year. So we do expect um, there's a couple of key factors that could actually cause the tightness of capacity margin. Um, but I'll mention three points here. So the, the first is on the um, supply side, which is whether the, the planned in nuclear restart or some of the gas CCGT plant that are procured from the long-term low carbon auction can be commissioned on time. If these large additions are delayed, um, we, we may actually going to see some elevated level of capacity market price for a year or two, um, which to the level that is required to either bring a a new plants online or delay the retirement of expensive aging thermal units to ensure security of supply. Um, second, on the demand side, um, government has a target of improving energy efficiency. So how this policy plays out certainly will have an impact on the peak demand and which will affect how capacity market will be um, procured. Um, lastly, 
Kyushu and Hokkaido are the two regions that um, sitting at the edge of the grid typically require additional capacity procurement for energy security because of the interconnection limit. And they actually see 50% higher capacity market price than the main regions historically. So these markets are expected to remain tight and volatile in the 2020s, but equally means more opportunities for technologies such as batteries to pick up potentially higher capacity market payment. So, Sohan, if Aurora's right, and, and that's how the wholesale and capacity market does play out over the next five, 10 years, what technologies do we see winning in the Japanese market? And I define winning here as growing their percentage of the supply stack. So wind, batteries, gas coupled with CCS, what does our capacity mix look like moving forward in Aurora Central scenario? Yeah, so we see three major technologies winning over the long term, those being one, renewables, two, decarbonized thermal, and three, batteries. And again, each of these technologies are quote-unquote winning for different reasons. So firstly, renewables. When we say renewables, uh, I mean primarily solar and wind. We see growing from 130 gigawatts today to 270 gigawatts of the capacity mix in 2050. So renewables will be growing for a number of reasons, uh, such as the continued government support uh, in the form of the feed-in premium tariff and the 20-year low-carbon support mechanism, as well as the emerging corporate PPAs that Rowan had talked about, and all alongside carbon pricing, which will be making renewables more economic over the long term. So the second technology I mentioned was decarbonized thermal. Uh, decarbonized thermal meaning coal or gas with CCS or coal firing with hydrogen or ammonia, depending on the technology type. So these will transform the existing thermal fleet over time, mainly due to the low ter- long-term low carbon support mechanism and an increased carbon price. And so while this transition of the existing thermal fleet into this new decarbonized thermal fleet will take place, uh, the share of the capacity stack kind of stays around the same at about 120 gigawatts. And so lastly, the third point, the third technology we talked about was batteries. And we see batteries growing from zero gigawatts today to about 30 gigawatts in 2050. And so the main reasons for driving battery growth are the need for firming power, which is reflected in the quotas for batteries in the government's 20-year low-carbon support mechanism, and as well as the simple economics of batteries over time. So, Lynn, just to pick up on Sahun's last point around batteries, and I know most of the advisory work we're doing or a big chunk of the advisory work we're doing at the moment is on battery investment cases, which are still nascent in the market. What do we think the revenue stack actually looks like for batteries? Like what's the split between capacity, wholesale, balancing ancillary markets for a three-hour battery, which because of the way the capacity market's designed, you know, we think is probably going to be the dominant duration at least over the next little while? Yeah, so as the home mentioned, there are mainly kind of two pathways for bat- for battery business case. So option one is to basically participate in a long-term low-carbon capacity auction, um, which a battery will have its capex plus operating costs fully covered by a 20-year government subsidy, but also have to let go 90% of the revenue it receives from all sources. This is likely to be the way that um, debt financing prefers. The second pathway is to thinking about um, co-optimizing revenues across wholesale market, balancing market, and one-year capacity market contracts. 
um, this option is preferable from an equity perspective and will potentially capture a lot of the upside, especially for early mover advantage in the new balancing markets. Based on our modeling, um, we see batteries can potentially earn about 50% of its revenue from the new balancing market in the short term. And then towards the long term, as balancing market getting more mature and the wholesale spreads further improve due to deep and solo penetration, um, we see wholesale arbitrage gradually become the main revenue stream, counting for 60% of the revenue. And then balancing and a one-year capacity market counts for about 20%. Alex, maybe I can finish up on this output section of the conversation with you. And, and you've already touched on this a couple of times, but how are we thinking about different scenarios in the Japanese context? You know, Aurora does scenario now, it's all across the world. But I suppose what's a little bit unique, like what type of scenarios are investors asking us to run in the, in the Japanese context? So it is important uh, to cater to the investor community who does have interest all over the world. And we do have our central now low scenarios, which have these consolidated uh, technology cost assumptions and, and, and commodity prices. And you can look at that and see how does this asset class uh, behave in Japan versus uh, elsewhere. But Japan is special. And therefore, we do have, in addition to these two mainstream scenarios, three other ones. Um, two of them um, are specifically built in, in order to explore a world in, in which we're trying to achieve net zero. Um, and uh, there's two ways that we've conceptualized this. One is that we believe what the government says, word for word, and everything arrives on time. So this is the, the grid build out, the nuclear power plants, wind, everything uh, comes uh, comes in as uh, as intended. And then we see what happens to wholesale market prices and uh, the uh, the revenue of, of these uh, asset classes, how much curtailment there is, and, and so on and so forth. Um, in contrast to this, we have the carbon price scenario, which also achieves the same strategic objective of net zero by 2050, economy-wide. But it does so not through out-of-market payments, like in the government plan scenario, but through the implementation of the carbon price alone. And uh, this means that uh, there's an interaction between the carbon market and the wholesale market, and the experience of different asset classes in this scenario is completely different from uh, the, the government plan. And, and this will create two very interesting extremes for um, our clients to look at. The fifth and final scenario that we have in, uh, in Japan is the messy transition, which injects some lumpiness into the future. So what happens when you don't have perfect foresight, but you do have uh, things happening such as delays on nuclear power or on uh, the build-out of the grid. So uh, this is where you see things uh, such as uh, price spikes. And this um, this case then becomes very interesting for the equity side of, of, of project developer development, uh, where people are trying to build batteries or other such assets that can really uh, respond flexibly to, to such an environment. Yeah, I think that messy transition scenario in particular, you know, I cover a lot of different markets and all markets have their own problems. But I think everyone is recognizing that the energy transition is not going to be a super smooth linear journey over 20 years. There's going to be issues around grid availability, supply chains, commodity volatility, and you want to build some of that into your forward forecast to take a sensible view on potential upside. So we're doing that in Japan just as we do it in Australia, California, and, and other markets. Hey, Otto, we're pressed for time, but we know you 
you know, you guys have been working very hard on developing the Japan market model and the market reports that sit off that. What's in the Aurora development pipeline? Like what new products do we want to bring to Japan that we think will be helpful for people investing in the market? So our Japan team has over 10 people now, and our Tokyo office is located in the Toranuma district next to Toranuma Hills. And uh, we're already advising on a number of transactions, uh, specifically in batteries and renewables. Uh, we also have our upcoming subscriber session on better economics this coming October. So on the back of this, uh, we will be releasing a regular quarterly forecast on batteries as well. So in the coming quarters, uh, we're also looking to build up our grid modeling capabilities to assess the potential impact of Japan's grid on renewable economics. So in addition, we will be rolling out our suite of software solutions as well in order to support transactions and advisory projects in Japan for our clients. Awesome. And Brian, maybe one final question for you. And this is something we ask at the end of, or I ask at the end of all these podcasts. What's one out of consensus view that we think maybe Aurora has on the Japanese energy market that does sit at odds with conventional wisdom or, or official policy or, or whatever it might be? So I might, I might actually reframe this slightly uh, because I think Japan has actually got quite a unique position in comparison to a lot of the other markets we look at globally. Mm. So actually, I actually might cover this a bit more from the angle of like, where, does, where does Japan fundamentally differ in its long-term outlook from European, American markets as an example. And I think the key area of, of major difference that we're seeing there is, is actually on the kind of decarbonized thermal fleet and its role long-term. The government has got a pretty diversified uh, view and support set of support mechanisms over the long term to make sure that it's got a it's got a mix of, of nuclear renewables but also is thinking about the fleet Japan is a major energy importer and so the government has laid out a really um, big package for to, of support for uh, gas with CCS hydrogen co-firing ammonia co-firing uh, to name a, to name a few and as a result of that what we're seeing over the long term is that there's actually a reasonable proportion of the mix that remains thermal rather than being full kind of renewables with, with flexibility, which is what we see a lot of other markets develop to. Because of that support mechanisms, we're expecting to see a lot more of that um, hydrogen ammonia firming technologies coming into the mix, as well as things like batteries over the long term. And I think that's one area that Japan will be a leader um, over the long term. We'll see a lot of innovation and investment in that particular sector that differs from other markets. Yeah, and it makes sense given the very real constraints of Japan, physical constraints. We certainly, when I look at our capacity expansion charts up to 2050, there are a couple of colours in there that I don't often see at that scale in the capacity mix. Alex, maybe one last question for you. Who's riding on the Japan energy space that you think is always good, thought-provoking and, and relevant to the private sector? Well, the relevance of private sector is to pay attention to what the government wants to achieve. So I would really strongly recommend to, to look at what METI says, what OPTO says, and maybe the Transmission and Distribution Grid Council um, as well. But uh, in terms of uh, outfits that you know do um, uh, modeling and thinking about the, the future, I would say to look at uh, places such as CLEAPI or IEJ. Um, they uh, do uh, very high-profile work uh, in, in this space. Uh, challengers um, would be places such as the Renewable um, uh, Energy Institute, which, full disclosure, used to be an employer of mine. 
in the past, um, and uh, maybe Kyoto University. Now, in terms of individuals, uh, actual people, uh, I would recommend uh, Professor Yasuda Yo from Kyoto University, um, Shiraishi Kenji from the Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, um, and maybe Llewellyn Hughes as well from the Australian National University, who I think is going to be a future guest on our podcast. Yeah, absolutely. It's coming on in a, a week or so. Team, we might wrap it up there. Thanks so much for your time today. Hopefully the audience found it interesting and a whistle-stop tour of the Japan energy market. We've covered a lot in, in 40 or 45 minutes. Thanks for your time and speak soon. That was Hugo Batten, Aurora's Managing Director for APAC in California, talking to Aurora's power market leadership team in Tokyo. Rowan von Spreckelsen, Hayato Ono, Celine Chen, Alex Luda and Seon Nakama. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.